reading this morning comes to us from Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. And as we go there, let me just say thank you for having me. It's always a delight to be here. Uh, I know this summer um, I was in a lot of conversation with Ransom about uh, Steve Pink, who I know you love dearly, we love dearly. And um, we were praying about where the Lord might lead him and that it would be the best place for, for both of us. And when he decided to come to First Pres, Ransom was the first one to text me. We're excited for you, congrats. And I said, hey, I owe you one. And he immediately texted me, September 4th, need someone to preach. <laughs> so I am repaying a debt uh, to Ransom, happy to do so, and especially happy to give him a break. Let's, let's go to the Lord here in chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I wonder if um, you've ever been frantic at a dinner party yourself. This summer, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity, our, our kids were at Camp Bon Clark and our two oldest and our youngest uh, were with their Grammy and Papa and so we had the opportunity to be home for a couple days, just the two of us. And there were some projects we wanted to do and we decided to have some friends over. And uh, we didn't have kids around, so it seemed a little bit easier to get the house ready and yet there was still the chaos right up before our friends came over. And about an hour before I had showered and gotten ready and uh, Sarah said, hey, we still need some of these ingredients. And so I decided I would run out real quick to the store and get the last second items. And as I was backing out of our driveway, our driveway's kind of a narrow driveway and it takes some skill to get out of it. As I was backing out, I looked in my rear view and there had been people paving our streets uh, the whole week and they happened to be right behind my driveway blocking our driveway in. And so I remember thinking to myself, oh man, they're right at our driveway. And as I was saying the word driveway, I heard this explosion, boom. And I got out of my truck, I couldn't figure out what happened. And Sarah had been doing a project painting the guest bathroom. And that afternoon to tidy up the bathroom, she had put put the paint supplies right next to the door, which is a little challenging to get out of with the car. And so I'd run over the paint can. And it was like I hit an IED. I mean, it was an explosion. Scared me half to death. I walked out, the paint can had exploded in half all over my car, all over the side of the house. Sea salt, sea salt all over our brown brick house. And it's amazing the spread you can get from a paint can explosion. I mean, it's like the back of this room, the whole thing was completely, completely covered, splatter paint. And so fortunately I had borrowed a pressure washer that I'd used the week before to pressure wash that same wall. <laughs> and so I got out and decided, well, I'm, I can't get out. I don't know where I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna have to pressure wash this wall. I, was, I wasn't happy with the scenario uh, with myself. Uh, maybe with the paint cans location. It took me an hour to paint off a four foot by four foot square. 
Sea salt paint dries quickly on, a, on your brick. The rest of it's still there. Haven't gotten back to it. It's about a month ago. Have not gotten back to it. But I was soaking wet an hour later. I had to go back in and shower. We didn't have the ingredients. We hosted the party. It was fine. But sometimes life feels like a dinner party paint explosion, doesn't it? And in the midst of life's distractions, what, what does the Lord want to teach us? I remember pressure washing and thinking, Lord, what are, you, what are you trying to teach? I didn't get the lesson in the moment. What does the Lord want to teach us? And here is a dinner party where there is great distraction. And what, what is it that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who places this story here, what is it that Jesus, who's communicating in the midst of the story, wants in particular his disciples to learn? He wants them to learn one thing, that the disciple chooses one thing in the midst of his distractions. And I want to get at that one thing by thinking about it in two points that are, that are a little bit more focused on the Lord and, and less on us. The first is this, the Lord sees our distractions. The Lord sees our distractions here in verses 38 to 40. Jesus at this time had Lucas told us in earlier in chapter nine, he had set his face like flint, like a rock to go to Jerusalem. He's on a mission. He's going there to destroy the works of the devil. He's going there to die, to ransom a people for himself. He's going there to glorify his father. He's traveling with his disciples. He's been up in the northern region, up in Galilee, where he's done most of his ministry all the way through chapter 9. And Luke has been trying to teach us all the things that Jesus did there and how he revealed to his disciples who he was in that great climactic moment earlier in chapter 9 where he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give a variety of answers. And then he hones in and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. They've come to understand something of who he is, but now they need to understand what it means that he is the Messiah. What kind of Messiah is he? What is his mission? What did he come to do? And so now, now Luke is pivoting to his journey to Jerusalem to the cross, less on what he has done up in Galilee and now on what he's going to teach about who he is and what he's come to do. He's going to teach us a lot. We could think of it as the journey to Jerusalem, or we could think of it as the way of discipleship on the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus is taking them somewhere, but he's teaching them something along the way as they walk to Jerusalem. In fact, he's in Bethany now. Bethany's about a mile and a half from Jerusalem, uh, east on the foothills of the Mount of Olives. And Luke doesn't tell us that he's in Bethany. We know that from, from John's version. But Luke's not interested in us knowing exactly where he is because Luke is not telling us the story according to geography or chronology. He's placing bits of the story along the way to Jerusalem, maybe out of chronology and out of geography, into the spots he wants them. And right here, he's wanting, us to, he's wanting to teach us how disciples respond to Jesus, how disciples receive Jesus. So he's just sent out the 72 on their mission. They've gone and proclaimed the kingdom of God. And he said, some will receive me and some will reject me. And in the story just above this one, he's told the story of the lawyer who comes to Jesus and tries to test him and then tries to justify himself. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. The lawyer is not willing to hear and do what Jesus teaches. He rejects him. But Mary, in this passage, is a contrast to that lawyer. She's a receiver of the word of God. She's willing to hear and listen 
and obey her Savior. What does disciples do when Jesus comes to town? He's come to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. This is, this is kind of his, his hostel, his safe haven, his bed and breakfast when he comes to the south. It's his place where he can experience some good old southern uh, etiquette and some, some southern hospitality. But everywhere that Jesus goes, when he enters, he begins to teach. And so maybe you know a person like this. Maybe you know someone who you just really respect and you think, if I could get five minutes with that person, I would ask them this question. Or maybe you do know them pretty well and you're around them often and, and every time you're around them, there seems to be a circumstance or a topic that comes up or a question that happens and they just, they always have the right answer. They're so wise, they always have balm for the situation and Jesus is like that. Wherever he goes, maybe someone's asked them a question or maybe a circumstance happens or, or a topic comes up and he's teaching. He's teaching these people. And Mary, Mary knows what Jesus is like when he teaches. And she sits at his feet. She decides to come and probably in this little house, there's, it's not nearly as big as this room even. The house would have been a small little kitchen and then probably a small little bedroom and then a small little living and dining room. Everything happened in that living and dining room. And Jesus and his disciples have come on in and they're sitting probably on the floor talking to one another and waiting for some food to be served. And Mary gets the fact that Jesus is here and I'm going to take advantage and she sits at his feet with him. Perhaps she's thinking to herself, I, I can't believe I have this undistracted, unhindered moment at the feet of my Lord. Lord is a theme in this passage, by the way. It's mentioned three times. Jesus is Lord. I can't believe I can sit at his feet. She's there almost as if she's a disciple. This is what disciples would have done with their rabbis. They would have sat at the feet of their rabbi. The problem is her place was actually in the kitchen. In her society, her place was in the kitchen in this moment. And only disciples sat at the feet of their rabbis and disciples were males. And so women in Palestine were tasked with other obligations. They had the obligations of managing the household. So they did the cleaning, they did the laundry, they raised the kids, they did the spinning of wool when, when it was necessary for clothing, they cooked, and they provided for their husbands to actually have these opportunities to sit at the feet of someone who's come in town or to entertain them in that way and listen. Not only so, but hospitality was a major aspect of Palestinian life, especially Jewish Palestinian life. Hospitality was important. There are guests in this tiny little home and bread and water at minimum would have been expected. Maybe the bread wasn't cooked yet. And Martha's in the kitchen cooking this bread. But this is Jesus. And probably foot washing would have been expected. Anointing with oil. Mary will do that the next time Jesus comes to town, by the way. And even a, a great meal like meat being involved, which was more of a rarity in this society. And Martha gets this. She understands. She's doing exactly what she knew to do. She's doing exactly what she was supposed to do in her society. She's serving the Lord Jesus. She's doing what most of us would have done if he came to town here now. We'd have gotten the house ready. We would have gotten a meal ready. We would have wanted to provide for this Savior. She's providing good old-fashioned Southern hospitality. But you know what the problem is with, with good old-fashioned Southern hospitality is, don't you? It's just too much work. It's too much work. 
We're having people over and, and the yard needs to be trimmed and the driveway needs to be blown off. And, and as I was talking to my wife yesterday, she said, soon can you please blow off the roof? We look like the only thatched roof family in town. <laughs> the pine needles are all over the roof. We gotta get this taken care of. And then there's bushes right by the front steps that look great a year ago, but they're old and nasty now. We gotta uproot those before people come over. We need to head down to the garden center and get new ones and replant. There's rose bushes growing over the banister as you walk up the steps and someone might lose an eye. We need to trim those back. We haven't even made it inside yet. We need to sweep and we need to mop and we need to vacuum and we need to clean up and there's clutter all over this house. And have you even walked into the guest bathroom lately? It's a disaster. We haven't even gotten to the menu. We need to make sure that we have drinks and ice and appetizers and the main course and dessert. Don't worry about the casserole because we're gonna cater that in and replate it into our own platter and that's a secret of Southern hospitality. But I'd like some fresh meat so if you could grill, the propane tank's low by the way and we need to go get that filled up before we get going and you've already sweated through three clothing apparatus before the, the meal even starts, before anyone even gets there. And by the time people get there, we haven't even talked about cleanup on the back end, how exhausting that is. And when they finally come, who actually wants to engage them? Who actually wants to have fellowship? I'm ready for a nap. We're exhausted. The problem with Martha's hospitality is not that she's serving. She was absolutely free to do that. The problem is that she's become a slave to her service. She's forgotten what service really is. Service is an other-centered appreciation. It's other-centered without the need for recognition. It, it, for recognition. It's like the Lord Jesus who considered others more than himself and went all the way to the cross for them. Service, true service, is done with a heart of gratitude. Not a heart of anxiety, not a heart of anger. But what does verse 40 tell us? But Martha is distracted, distracted with much serving. She's distracted in her serving by the fact that no one notices. She's not gotten recognition. No one seems to notice her. No one seems to care for her. Her own sister, who should be in the kitchen with her, has actually abandoned her, and her Lord, Jesus, doesn't even seem to care. He doesn't notice. He doesn't stop this. He doesn't tell Mary to do what she's supposed to be doing. He doesn't care, and her blood pressure boils up to the point where she bursts into the living room and causes a scene. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. You can imagine the silence that followed that statement. And I wonder if you've ever been there. I'm busting my hump and nobody notices. I'm busting my hump and nobody cares. I'm busting my hump and she's sitting on hers. I remember a scene from youth basketball. I was not good at youth basketball. Uh, and our team was not good at youth basketball. <laughs> we lost every game that year. I think I was in fourth or fifth grade maybe. And uh, I still remember the coach. I still remember the coach's son. The coach's son didn't pass the ball ever. And looking back, now I kind of understand why he didn't. We were terrible. But it's one thing to never pass the ball if you're winning some games. It's another thing to never pass the ball and lose every game. And so we were, we were gathered around in a huddle 
uh, maybe, you've, maybe you can picture this. We were gathered around in a huddle after the game and these huddles tend to have the players around the coach and then there's parents around the players and the coach was giving us something along the lines of, you know, good try again. You know, you tried again and it was a good effort and we lost again and there was some commotion outside the kid huddle amongst the parents. And one of the moms bursts into the huddle, finger pointed directly at the coach and says, well, maybe we would win a game if your son ever passed the ball. Her dad's holding her back. Kids were, kids were terrified at this scene. And there was the deafening silence because the party had stopped. I wonder if you've ever been there. You just lost it. Or it bubbled up to the surface and you felt like you were going to lose it. The places that we let our minds go to when things don't go our way, when we don't get noticed, when we think no one cares, when life builds in a constant age of distraction. Paul David Tripp wrote a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He's a preacher and counselor, fantastic uh, at what he does. And he talks about this idea. He says, we all have desires, good or bad. The problem is that when desires become demands, I must have this. Demands become needs, I will have this. Needs become expectations. You should fulfill this for me. Expectations become disappointments. You didn't fulfill this for me. And disappointments become punishments. Because you didn't, I will. I'll fulfill it. I'll take matters into my own hands. I'll take revenge upon you. I'll let you have it. You name it. And Martha had become distracted, I think, by her desire to be recognized for her service. And she lashes out in punishment on her own sister and even on her own savior, accusing him of not caring. And all of it actually just unraveled in her head. I suppose as, as we walk through this journey here with her, the one thing that maybe she did right, although she did it with wrong motivations and the wrong tone and the wrong words, was at least she went to Jesus. Right? At least she went to Jesus. And what she's going to find in Jesus is that Jesus actually is not, is not and has never been an uncaring taskmaster. He actually is a loving Lord who sees our distractions and wants to meet our needs. And that's the second point. The Lord who meets our needs. He's the Lord who meets our needs. Look at verse 41. But the Lord, has, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Sometimes it fascinates me how we read scripture. Where do we put the, the emphasis? Where do we put the emphasis when we read scripture? How, how do we read the tone from scripture? It's one thing to read the words, but what's Jesus' tone here? I suppose we could read this passage, Martha, Martha, with an angry tone. I'm so disappointed. I'm so frustrated. Boy, I tell you, if someone broke up into my dinner party that I was hosting and I'm in dialogue with someone important and, and they broke up into my dinner party and accused me of something and told me that I don't have a heart, <laughs> I would be tempted to be a little bit frustrated, maybe defensive, argumentative, 
maybe angry. Think about how many times maybe a kid has burst into an important moment in your house, important conversation with a spouse, an important conversation with someone you're hosting. How did you respond to that? But Jesus isn't like us. He's so righteous and wise and good in his character, in his responses, in his tone. He's gentle and lowly. That's how he describes himself. He's gentle and lowly. A bruised reed he does not break. A smoldering wick he does not snuff out. Not only so, but he, his kindness leads us to repentance. And he loves Martha. John tells us in, in John eleven five. now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loves them. Certainly there's emphasis in this passage or he wouldn't repeat her name like Lord, Lord or teacher, teacher or holy, holy, holy. There's emphasis going on here when he repeats her name, Martha, Martha. But I think it's more to get her attention and to get her to focus in on him. To see, as as Dr. Thomas often says to us, to see no one in the picture but Jesus. He's focusing her eyes and her hearts in on him. She's been seeing red. And she's been hearing all kinds of voices in her head. And she's been believing lies, the ultimate of which was that Jesus is uncaring. And Jesus, like a father with a terrified child who's woken up from a nightmare gently and lovingly stops whatever he's doing and he focuses in on Martha's heart, on Martha's struggles, on Martha's needs, on Martha's growth. And he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He is rebuking her, no doubt. He is rebuking her. But so gently and so tenderly He's not pouring gasoline on the fire like we often do in our culture. He's brought balm to the situation because she's anxious and she's troubled. Anxiety here is the idea in the Greek of being overly concerned with something, meditating upon, muttering it over and over and over, encumbered by, held, held down by something. Isn't that what anxiety is to us? That it's, it's we, we become consumed with something and we can't shake it. We can't get rid of it. We can't let it go. We're afraid of of some past experience coming back to haunt us again. We're afraid of some future nightmare becoming a reality and we think if I can worry enough, I can worry it away. If I can worry enough, I can control life such that I can make sure that this never happens to me again or this never happens to me in the future. The problem is that just makes us more anxious. Chip Dodd in his book, Voice of the Heart, says this, when we do this, when we try to worry life away, he says, more anxiety, we produce more anxiety because in order to control anxiety, we focus on preventing rejection, humiliation, failure, not being acknowledged for our achievements, not performing to someone else's standard, not being loved, All of these things are in the future and we cannot even touch them. And so we become more anxious about the other things we can't control in life as we're trying to control the things that we're trying to prevent. We are anxious people. There's no no doubt that's part of why we're constantly called sheep in Scripture. And we're told to not be afraid. And we're told to remember the truths of the Word. And it's not new. Martha struggled with it too. 
and her anxiety has troubled her, Jesus says. Or in other words, her anxiety has made her so upset. Martha, Martha, your anxious fears have made you so upset. And I wonder if you've ever been there, so busy with doing, so busy with anxious thoughts, so busy with being upset that you've just, you've just lost it. You just lost it. And Jesus says, let me help you. Let me, let me give you the cure. It's, it's actually what Mary has chosen. It's the good portion. And I won't deprive her of what she's chosen. Martha, actually, you could have chosen serving and it would have been fine with the right spirit. But, but, but Mary's chosen something that I'm not going to take away from her. What is that good portion? It's fascinating, again, to read Scripture, especially to read the Greek here, because in verse 41 and 42, the last word in the Greek in verse 41 is many things, like we probably see in our ESV Bible and in our English Bible. Many things. You're anxious and troubled about many things. But the first word in verse 42 is not but there. It, it helps us to read it a little more, a little better in the English. The first word in verse 42 is one thing. One thing but is necessary. Is how the Greek reads. You're anxious and troubled about many things. One thing. Many things. One thing. And I think what, what Jesus is saying and what Luke is drawing out is that there's a contrast taking place here between the many things and the one thing. What Jesus is not saying is don't serve. Don't be the type A kind of person. He's not saying that. He's not saying be more contemplative like Mary. Be more type B. Actually, the, the medieval church will pick up this passage and begin to found monasteries. Because they interpreted this passage as, okay, we need to get away from the distractions of the world and we need to go and just be contemplative. That's the thing we should do with our lives. No, 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 we need servants. We need type A people. We need structure. We need food on the table. We needed someone to provide Jesus and his disciples with some food. It's true, we needed those realities. But we need servants with the right spirit. And that spirit is not formed correctly unless first and foremost we are at peace with and devoted to Jesus. We're at peace with and devoted to Jesus. That's the one thing. That's the good portion. And I think all Christian service actually flows out of that reality, devotion. I think devotion is the right word actually here. As we think about what did she choose, she chose devotion. In fact, that's going to be the word that describes the early Christian church, Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were, in the Greek, they were busy with. They were consumed by. One, one theologian put it as, they were actually addicted to the preaching of the word, the fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ, table fellowship, prayers, evangelism that flows out from there later on in the passage. They were addicted to it. They were busy with it. They devoted themselves to Jesus. And it's hard to imagine us doing much good for the Lord without devotion to the Lord as our first and highest and best priority. The word, prayer, church. We, we, are, we are a devoted people. And we are distracted by so many things, even good things. And service matters greatly, but in an age of distraction, we can't, we can't forget 
that Jesus wants to meet our needs first and foremost in giving us himself. As we're devoted to him, he wants to give us himself. He's a Lord who sees our needs. He's a Lord who sees our distractions. He's a Lord who wants to meet our needs by giving us himself as we devote ourselves to him. This won't be the last time that he meets the needs of Mary and Martha. Later on, their brother Lazarus will die. And again, he loved Mary and Martha and he loved Lazarus and he'll come back to Bethany and and Martha will run to Jesus. Perhaps she's in one of her anxiously active places again. And she'll say to him, Lord, if if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But also hear her faith. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Mary's at home. She hasn't come out. She's, she's deeply grieving. She's wailing probably loudly because people are consoling her, the scripture says. And Mary has to go get her and say, Jesus wants to meet you more in a private moment. Come out and meet with him. And she goes out and meets with him. And she too says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus, the scripture says, is furious. He's not furious at Martha's reaction. He's not furious at Mary's reaction. He's furious at death. In fact, the text pictures him as a snorting stallion in this moment. He hates death. He's furious at it. And then that short passage, Jesus weeps. Why does he weep? He weeps over the effects that death has caused upon people. And then, of course, he raises Lazarus from the dead. But in doing so, he reveals something more about himself. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He is the resurrection and the life indeed. The, 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 he, is, he is the resurrection and the life for both the worrywart and the willing heart. He is the resurrection and life for the servant and the one who sits at his feet. He is the resurrection and the life for the distracted heart and for the desirous heart. Jesus is the Lord who first and foremost wants to meet our need for salvation. For those who have not believed upon Christ Jesus, he's the one who wants to say, all those other things that are distracting you that you keep plugging into to give you life, they won't satisfy you. I am the resurrection and the life. I want to satisfy you. Do you believe this? And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, still so easily distracted, he wants to meet our needs for sanctification in every, every sense of that word. He wants to grow us up in all the ways that we need to be grown up. And he wants to do so by calling us into a life of devotion to him, that he might give us more and more of himself. To serve, yes. To labor, yes. To work hard, yes. But to do so out of a prioritized life, out of the first and chief and foremost, out of devotion to the Lord Jesus. And as he gives us himself, as we devote ourselves to him, then we take him with us, so to speak, into all the world as we labor in the big tasks and in the menial tasks in our lives for his glory and for our good. And so in a myriad of choices, the one thing that the disciple chooses is devotion to Christ, to hearing and to doing. Let's go to him in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for your holy word and we confess that in the midst of a distracted life,
We need more of Christ. And we thank you even for this table that we come to now as an opportunity to not just hear the word, but to taste and experience the gospel. Refresh us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.